The employee of former President Trump accused of helping obstruct investigators looking into mishandled classified documents heads to court today. It's Monday, July 31st. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. Good morning, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up, the extreme heat in the Southwest is highlighting how climate change is impacting Native American communities. If we keep extracting from our environment, it's not just going to be heat stroke, it's going to be losing people's lives. Also, the health of Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell has sparked questions about his successor and this hour. We tell people, like, come to this trail, and oftentimes they get there and they're like, now what? The effort in Colorado to make hiking sites more accessible to people who don't speak English. In sports, Red Sox lose, mostly sunny, around 80 today. It's 7.01. Now the news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Corva Coleman. A worker at the Florida resort of former President Donald Trump is expected to make his first appearance in federal court today. Carlos de Oliveira is accused of obstructing federal authorities who were trying to retrieve sensitive national security documents at the resort. De Oliveira is also accused of lying to investigators. Trump is accused of mishandling classified documents after leaving the White House. The freight company Yellow has ceased operations and will soon be filing for bankruptcy. That's according to the Teamsters Union. It represents the company's drivers. NPR's Camille Dominoski says the company has been financially troubled for years. Yellow, formerly known as YRC Freight, has been restructured and bailed out several times over the past 15 years, including a controversial $700 million government loan in the early days of the pandemic. The indebted company has been in financial crisis for months. Then Yellow stopped making pension and benefits payments. The Teamsters threatened to strike and customers fled. NPR's Camila Dominoski reporting. A federal judge in Arkansas is temporarily blocking a law set to take effect tomorrow. It would allow officials to file criminal charges against librarians and booksellers for providing harmful materials to minors. From member station KUAF, Jacqueline Froelich reports. The new Arkansas law criminalizes public library staff, public school librarians, and booksellers who knowingly provide materials deemed to be harmful to minors. To avoid prosecution, Staff are required to remove such materials out of reach of minors. More than a dozen plaintiffs claim the law restrains them from making available to patrons constitutionally protected materials. U.S. District Judge Timothy Brooks, in his order, likened the new law to a book burning. Arkansas Attorney General Tim Griffin is expected to challenge the injunction. For NPR News, I'm Jacqueline Froelich in Fayetteville. There's been no claim of responsibility following a deadly bombing in Pakistan. At least 45 people were killed and dozens wounded when a suicide bomber attacked a political rally near the Afghan border over the weekend. NPR's Dia Hadid reports. Local media reported the bomber detonated over 20 pounds of explosives and the wounded overwhelmed local health facilities in the remote border district of Bajur. Helicopters ferried the wounded to hospitals across the country's northwest. The bomber targeted a rally of a hardline religious political party that forms part of the Pakistani government. The party is considered sympathetic to the Taliban, and experts say the attack is likely an escalation of deadly rivalry between ISIS and the Taliban. Militant attacks in Pakistan have been on the rise since the Taliban seized power of neighbouring Afghanistan nearly two years ago. Dia Hadid, NPR News.
You're listening to NPR News. I'm Rupa Shanoi. This is WBUR in Boston. Today on Beacon Hill, State House and Senate leaders plan to vote on a budget for this fiscal year. The fiscal year began a month ago. They came to an agreement on the $56 billion proposal over the weekend. More than $6 billion of the budget is set to go to education. Another billion is earmarked as unrestricted aid for state communities. For the last month, the state has been operating on an interim budget. The National Weather Service confirms a tornado hit Foxborough and Easton over the weekend. The agency says the twister had winds of 105 miles an hour. It only traveled about a quarter of a mile. There was no damage. This is the third tornado to hit New England this month. There was one in New Hampshire last week and another in North Brookfield earlier this month. More than two dozen Boston Public School students are wrapping up a summer project. Their goal is to make Roxbury more heat resilient. As WBUR's Emily Piper Villillo reports, it's part of a larger effort to diversify the field of urban planning. During the month-long program at Roxbury Community College, students documented the extreme heat in Roxbury. Using sensors, they created a heat map and designed a climate-resilient park. High school student Winders Arias says learning about urban planning helped him play a role in shaping his community. But the process wasn't always easy. We had to work outside in a park with no shade whatsoever, pretty much. So it was pretty difficult, but it was very fun. The program was organized by Boston Public Schools, the city's planning and development agency, and others. They say they hope to include even more students next year. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Emily Piper Valillo. The Haymarket Tea Station is closed this morning and will stay closed for about two weeks. The MBTA says the station is closed because of the demolition of a garage above the station. There will be no green line service between North Station and Government Center. On the Orange Line, trains will pass through Haymarket without stopping. The closure will run through August 12th. There is some good news for tea riders, though. The B branch of the Green Line is back up with open this morning. It's 7.06. WBUR supporters include Eric and Wendy Schmidt through the Schmidt Family Foundation, working together to create a just world where all people have access to renewable energy, clean air and water, and healthy food. On the web at theschmidt.org. The Red Sox fell to the Giants yesterday in San Francisco. The final was 4-3 to in 11 innings. The Sox will head to Seattle tonight to play the Mariners. Right now, the Sox are eight games behind first-place Baltimore in the AL East. They're also two-and-a-half games out of a wild-card spot. Mostly sunny today. It'll be around 80, partly cloudy overnight with temperatures in the lower 60s. Sunny tomorrow and in the upper 70s. Right now it's 65 degrees in Boston. Thanks for starting your day with WBUR. For the perfect spot to host your next event, discover City Space, WBUR's hidden gem on Commonwealth Avenue. Whether for a gala, board meeting, or wedding, City Space is the ideal setting for unforgettable occasions in a gorgeous state-of-the-art venue will help make your vision a reality. More at wbur.org slash rentals.
This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Amy Martinez in Culver City, California. And I'm Leila Faldil in Washington, D.C. A third criminal indictment against former President Donald Trump, which could come as early as this week, stands apart from other charges already filed against the former president. This one is about undermining democracy in this country. It centers on the efforts to overturn the 2020 election and obstruct the peaceful transfer of power, even as Trump remains the Republican frontrunner for the 2020 race by a lot. Ty Cobb was a member of the legal team in the Trump White House. He's also a former U.S. assistant attorney, and he's with us now to talk about this case. Good morning, and thanks for joining us. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. So how quickly do you expect Special Counsel Jack Smith to move on this investigation into Trump's efforts or the accusations that uh, he wanted to stay in office after losing the election and his conduct around the January 6th attack? I expect he'll move uh, no later than this week. Hmm. And do you expect this case to be a strong case? Yes. I mean, certainly, um, you know, you look at prosecutors a little bit like artists, mm-hmm. and uh, the Mar-a-Lago document is uh, is definitely a uh, Michelangelo. Uh, it's about it's one of the tighter documents, uh, charging documents. Uh, um, I've seen. Uh, it puts the case together in a very uh, clear narrative that uh, uh, almost any layperson can understand and certainly the the um, uh, defendants can understand i expect this case to be to be much more complex um, because of the number of witnesses and the num- and they'll have uh, a larger number of issues to deal with but i think they will put it together in a in a good narrative and uh, um, the reasons that uh, Trump is being charged will be very clear to anybody who uh, reads the indictment seriously. You refer to the documents case as a Michelangelo case. That's the federal indictment that's already here. Trump's facing 40 federal criminal charges in the case where he's accused of willfully retaining and mishandling classified documents. There was a superseding indictment last week that brought new charges that included an accusation that Trump was trying to get his employees to delete security camera footage. And today, a third defendant in that case is being arraigned, a Mar-a-Lago property manager and former valet accused of trying to delete that footage. How significant is this arraignment and these new charges? So uh, the new charges are very significant. The arraignment, not so much. Mm-hmm. Um, the uh, uh, you know the new charges. You know uh, people talk about you know the potential for delay. The reality is you know there's probably only four hours worth of trial proof that is involved in <laughs> in proving uh, the new charges. Um, you've got a couple of witnesses and and some tapes, um, and they don't have any defense to it. It's not like they're going to have you know witnesses who say, well, don't believe what you see on the tapes or don't believe the you know, telephone recordings that you hear or don't believe the emails that they sent. Um, you know, you don't you don't get to do that um, unless there's some reason to believe that they were manufactured, of course, which there is not since they were received directly from the president, former so, president. So you see this as a very tight case and you see it foreshadowing uh, what you expect to be a very strong case in the in the third indictment, possible indictment that we're expecting this week. But the Justice Department has a long-standing policy that it will not indict or criminally prosecute a sitting president. Should Trump win next year's election, he's the Republican front runner by far, what happens to these cases? 
Well, I think the 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 simple reality is, you know, he has to win in order to avoid going to jail. Um, you know, if he wins, the likelihood is, there, you know, there are several possibilities. Um, he may try to pardon himself. Um, people aren't convinced that's constitutional. That would go to the Supreme Court and back. Um, that would probably um, cause him to be impeached. Um, uh, he could also appoint uh, an interim attorney general uh, without waiting for Congress to uh, approve any nominee and have that attorney general just simply drop the charges, uh, which is probably a more likely route to go. But that won't spare him impeachment either. Former White House Special Counsel Ty Cobb, thank you for your time. My pleasure. Thank you. Much of the focus on the Wagner paramilitary group has been on fighting for Russia in Ukraine, but it's also sent fighters to Syria and parts of Africa. Now a Libyan man is suing the group's leader in the U.S. NPR's Ruth Sherlock has been following this, and we should warn, you will hear gunfire in her report. This was the moment that the Moscow-backed mercenaries tried to help take control of Libya's capital. The year was 2019, and Wagner contractors were acting on behalf of Libyan militiaman Khalifa Haftar in one of the most significant battles to date. Experts estimate there are hundreds of Wagner fighters in the country. This is the story of one man, Mohamed Ambes, who claims he was tortured and his relatives executed by the mercenaries. And Beers says he wants to hold these people to account. The Libyan-American Alliance, an advocacy group who represents Anbez, shared his recorded statement with NPR. The civil suit, filed in Washington, D.C., names both Wagner's leader, Yevgeny Prigozhin, and Khalifa Haftar, the head of the Libyan National Army fighting force that controls much of eastern Libya. In September 2019, Mohamed Ambes and his relatives escaped the war on Tripoli and fled to a family home in a rural village. Omar Tabouni of the Libyan-American Alliance takes up the tale. It started with the family just watching TV. The remote control broke. Ambes decided to go to a nearby house to get another one. But on the road, he encountered militiamen, so he turned back. Minutes later, they followed his vehicle, they entered his home, they pointed their weapons at his family members. He and four relatives were bundled into a pickup truck and held overnight. The following day, they were driven back towards home. But then the car stopped. They were dragged out and made to kneel on the ground. It was at this point they heard the click of a gun loading. The men opened fire. His father was executed, his brother-in-law were ex was executed, and his brother was executed. His other brother survived. He, he had a gunshot in the leg. But Muhammad, he uh, survived by playing dead in a pool of blood. The court papers say the men who did this had blue eyes and appeared not to speak Arabic. It alleges they were from the Russian Wagner group. Before the lawsuit was even filed, Omar Tabouni says a United Nations-backed fact-finding mission also looked at the case. In a published report, it concluded there were reasonable grounds to believe the actions of the Wagner mercenaries amounted to, quote, the war crimes of murder, torture and cruel treatment. This is not the first time and not the first country where the group has been accused of war crimes. 
Kip Hale, who served as the investigation team leader of the UN fact-finding mission, said during the offensive on the Libyan capital Tripoli, Wagner forces also violated international law by mining civilian homes. There are many conflicts around the world where we see abject ruthlessness. But the takeaway with Wagner is that they are a modern fighting force that has all the capacities and know-how to follow international law. Yet they go the opposite direction and actively disregard it. Neither Prigozhin nor Hefter responded to NPR's requests for comment. The court case in the US is being brought under the Torture Victim Protection Act, which allows a foreign citizen to file a claim when they can't do so locally. Hefter is a dual US citizen with property in Virginia. But it's not clear how the lawsuit could materially affect the Wagner Group's leader, Prigozhin. Already on the FBI's most wanted list, he's unlikely to come to the United States and doesn't have known assets there. Tanya Munson, an attorney representing Anbiz, says this is really more about the principle. We don't want warlords living in Virginia. No one expects Prigozhin to have his day in court, but she hopes the case can draw attention to the wider activities of the Wagner paramilitaries, not just in Libya. It's important to kind of identify that this is a problem not just in Ukraine, but it's also a problem in other parts of the world that don't get as much attention. Ruth Sherlock, NPR News. Beavers are doing their part to mitigate climate change. They help ease the effects of drought and wildfires by damming up streams and forming ponds. Yeah, that's according to the self-proclaimed beaver dam enthusiast Emily Fairfax. She's also an assistant professor of environmental science and resource management at California State University Channel Islands. When you do have a wildfire start burning in the landscape, these beaver ponds and the vegetation around them is just too wet to burn. It's like it's been irrigated or kept well watered, even if you've come off of a multi-year drought. In addition to creating wetlands, beavers are also restoring habitats. When they start their dam construction activities, they go around and they chew down some trees, not all the trees. They start to flood water. They dig these canals that radiate out into the floodplains from their little home ponds. They take the most simplified, degraded river or stream and make it complex so that there's a lot of different habitat there. If you are a fish or a frog or a bird, chances are you can find your ideal habitat in a beaver pond. Wildlife officials in California are looking to restore the beaver population and harness the rodents' natural abilities to improve ecosystems. But as Fairfax points out, busy beavers can't fight climate change alone. We are the ones putting out all of these emissions. Beavers are kind of here on cleanup crew, but they can only do so much work. And if we continue to exacerbate climate change through our own actions, they can't fix that for us. So the next time you see a beaver in the wild, thank them and maybe think about what you can do. This is NPR News. Good morning. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Thanks for starting your week with WBUR. Coming up in 15 minutes on Morning Edition, senators, including some in the GOP, are expressing concerns about minority leader Mitch McConnell's recent health episodes, despite McConnell's insistence that he's fine and will serve out his term. It's 719. I'm Susan Stamberg. When the time comes for a new car, consider donating your old one to us. 
We will turn it into your favorite programs. Here's how. Just go to WBUR.org. Since the start of Russia's invasion of Ukraine, experts in the U.S. and Europe have lamented that the global South hasn't taken a strong stance against Russia. What's behind their caution toward aligning with the West? The situation in the global South is nuanced. It's not black and white. But more needs to be done to engage with the global South. That's On Point this morning at 10 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. We're about halfway through the closure of the Sumner Tunnel. The link between East Boston and downtown will stay closed until August 31st for a construction project. The Blue Line of the T and the East Boston Ferry are both free during the closure. As far as the detours being used by drivers, the Ted Williams Tunnel is a 15-minute trip from Logan Airport to 93. Route 1 South is 25 minutes from the Revere Beach Parkway to the Leverett Connector. Mostly sunny today with a high near 82, partly cloudy tonight and a low around 62. Tomorrow sunny with a high near 78. Right now it's 66 degrees in Boston. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Procter & Gamble, maker of Nervive Nerve Relief. Nervive is designed to reduce occasional nerve aches, weakness, and discomfort in hands or feet due to aging. Learn more at NerviveHealth.com. From EBSCO with EBSCO Community, where libraries and library service providers come together to share ideas around open access, open source, and open infrastructure at communities.ebsco.com. From Heather Sturt-Haga and Paul G. Haga, supporting African Wildlife Foundation, working to ensure wildlife and wild lands thrive in modern Africa. Learn more at awf.org. And from the listeners who support this NPR station. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm e. Martinez. And I'm Leila Faldin. Good morning. Pregnancy can be the start of a journey filled with many difficult decisions. And some people suffer with the pain and sometimes the shame and silence as they navigate what's best for them and their fetus, including the possibility of having to terminate a pregnancy. A new novel out this month is about those decisions, told through the eyes of two women named Rachel and Katie. One is desperate to start a family but is struggling to stay pregnant. The other finds herself pregnant by accident. The Stories We Cannot Tell is the title of Leslie Rasmussen's book out this month. I started by asking her what inspired this story. Over 25 years ago, I was trying to get pregnant, and I had so many issues with miscarriages and getting pregnant. I was looking for somebody to talk to about it. And there wasn't the internet, and there wasn't a lot of places to go. And eventually, I found this organization called Resolve. And through it, I met a woman, and we exchanged emails, and we went through this whole thing together. I never honestly thought about writing a book about any of this until, like, during COVID. And this whole story came to me about women who want babies more than anything in the world, but end up with having to make a decision that they really don't want to make. And when you talk about that decision, you're talking about the decision sometimes that women have to make to end their pregnancies. Exactly. 
there's a lot of, you know, embarrassment, like I can't hold a pregnancy. And then there's shame. I don't think that people should feel shame for a decision they don't want to make, <laughs> you know, but it's either for their health or the baby may not make it, or there's lots of reasons. Is it still that way in 2023? These are still stories that are difficult to tell, to talk about, to share with each other. I think they are. And I think to some degree, Roe makes that worse because it's like, wait, you just took my rights away. So there, is there something wrong with me trying to make this decision for myself? If you don't mind me asking, Leslie, if you could just tell me more about your own struggles at that time and the stories that you couldn't tell back then. Sure. Um, well, basically, I started trying at 29 years old. Yeah. Um, I didn't have my first child until I was 34, so that tells you oh, how long wow. I struggled. Um, I would get pregnant and miscarry, and then finally I got pregnant, and the pregnancy held, and I was very excited. Mm -hmm. And similar to Rachel in the sense we got towards little before our second trimester when I heard that the baby wasn't going to make it. Mm. And going through it was just devastating. I'm 27 years past it, mm -hmm. so I can talk about it. But this story I could not have written back then. Yeah. There was no way. I mean, an emotional roller coaster, elation and devastation, joy and grief uh, for right. five years. Yeah. And denial <laughs> to some extent. And there was also that feeling like I was doing something wrong. There was something wrong with me. Mm. So that all came into play too. Right. Although we are living in a time where that is up for debate on whether people can or cannot tell you what to do. And that comes up only once in your book. Um, there's this moment in your book where Rachel finds out some really bad news about her pregnancy. And the doctor tells her, quote, even with the Supreme Court decision living in California, you still have the option of terminating the pregnancy now. I wanted to ask why you made that decision to reference Dobbs here almost indirectly one time in a book that revolves around the difficult decisions women have to make sometimes when they're pregnant. Well, I was shocked when Roe was overturned. I mean, it's just like, what is going on? I didn't want the book to be political in any way, but I felt like I had to at least address it because the book takes place in Los Angeles and we do have the rights to make decisions still here. So that's why I put that line in is just to sort of reference that it's taking place in 2023. Oh, okay. That makes a lot of sense. It's interesting because your character, Katie, who is a devout Catholic, mm -hmm. her faith is really important to her. She struggles with it in a way that is different than what Rachel is struggling with. If you could describe the the dynamic, the differences between these characters who are both facing these really difficult choices about their pregnancies. Right. Well, first of all, Katie got pregnant unintentionally. So, you know, that was the first part of her journey was to figure out, oh gosh, am I going to have the baby? What am I going to do? But being raised Catholic she almost would never probably have thought she would make that decision. Mm. With Rachel, she was raised pro-choice, but now she's faced with this decision about a baby she wants more than anything and a baby that she's been trying for for so long. So, you know, even though she gets this news, she's still struggling with how do I do this when this is the baby I want. Mm. I know you said, I didn't want this book to be political. But 
because of the nature of the topic. Is it inherently political to even talk about reproduction in 2023 in a post-Roe v. Wade world? I'd like to think it isn't, but yes, I guess it is because of, you know, there's so many people in other states that don't have the freedoms that we have in California. But I think with this book, what I really wanted to say is, you know, even if you are pro-life, you still have to consider and be compassionate of the other person going through it. And that's the problem with politics. You know, if somebody said, okay, to all men, you're going to be castrated, that would never go through, you know? Mm. But with women, it's like they can just take away our rights without considering a vote from women, because <laughs> that's who really should be voting on it. That's author Leslie Rasmussen. Her novel, The Stories We Cannot Tell, is out this month. Leslie, thank you. Thank you. Tomorrow on Morning Edition, veterans suffering from toxic chemicals and burn pit exposure now have access to new healthcare benefits. To hear the story of what's being called the largest expansion of veterans' benefits in U.S. history, tune into NPR on your smartphone, on the web, or turn on your radio. This is NPR News. Today's top stories are next, then coming up at 7.45 on WBUR's Morning Edition. We learn about efforts in Colorado to make hiking more accessible for Spanish speakers. It's 7.29. Use the WBUR app to keep listening live wherever you go today. It lets you pause and rewind live radio. Find it in your app store today. You know what I love about Posting Morning Edition? I get to introduce the work of our incredible reporters or interview people living through their most joyous moments and sometimes their most difficult days. It helps me and you, our listeners, understand the world we live in. But it also costs money. So donate your car towards supporting the work. Here's how. Learn more at WBUR.org cars. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. Carlos de Oliveira is expected to appear in court today in Florida. He's the property manager at former President Donald Trump's Mar-a-Lago estate. Last week, federal prosecutors added de Oliveira to the indictment, charging Trump and his valet, Walt Nada, of mishandling classified documents. Prosecutors allege de Oliveira worked with Trump to try to hide security footage from investigators. Trump has pleaded not guilty to the charges brought by special counsel Jack Smith. The recreational use of marijuana becomes legal in Minnesota beginning tomorrow. Samuel King with Minnesota Public Radio says two tribal nations will be joining in. The Red Lake Nation announced earlier this month that it will add recreational cannabis sales to its existing medical marijuana dispensary, more than four hours north of the Twin Cities, on August 1st. On Friday, the White Earth Nation announced it will also sell recreational marijuana beginning sometime in the first half of August. Both nations say their dispensaries will be open to both tribal and non-tribal members 21 years of age or older. While it will become legal to grow, possess, and use recreational marijuana, state officials reiterated that it will likely be 2025 before the state can fully set up a licensing and regulatory system 
for retail dispensaries. For NPR News, I'm Samuel King in Minneapolis. This is NPR News. This is WBUR in Boston. I'm Rupa Shanoi. A New Hampshire nurse and her child are reportedly being held captive in Haiti. The humanitarian group Elroy Haiti says 31-year-old Alex Dorsonville and her young daughter were kidnapped on Thursday. She was working at the nonprofit's Port-au-Prince campus at the time. The U.S. State Department says it is aware of the kidnapping. Government officials have issued a do-not-travel advisory to Haiti, citing widespread gang violence violence in the country. The state is requiring Eversource to redo its environmental impact report for proposed gas pipeline in Springfield. The state says the utility failed to sufficiently account for how the project would affect the state's climate goals and impact local communities. More now from WBUR's Miriam Wasser. For years, local residents have raised concerns about public safety, climate impacts, and environmental justice. Naya Tenerowitz is with the Springfield Climate Justice Coalition. She says the state's ruling was welcome news, since she and her neighbors, many of whom are lower income and struggle with respiratory issues, have felt their voices have been ignored in the planning process. This is not an end to our fight, but it is a very good sign that the administration is actually taking our environmental justice regulations and laws seriously. Eversource says the proposed five-mile gas pipeline is an important backup source of gas for the area. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Miriam Wasser. Officials are investigating a string of violent incidents last night in Dorchester and Roxbury. Police say one man died in a shooting on Blue Hill Avenue. About four hours after that, another person was killed in a shooting in Roxbury. Five more people were injured in shootings and stabbings. Police are unsure if any of the incidents are related. It's 733. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Simone Lee at the ICA. See why Lee was named one of Time's Top 100. Now on view, icaboston.org. The Red Sox lost to the Giants 4-3 in 11 innings yesterday in San Francisco. Tonight, the Sox visit the Seattle Mariners. Highs in the low 80s today under mostly sunny skies. Low 60s tonight, and it'll turn partly cloudy. Tomorrow, clear skies and highs in the upper 70s. Right now, it's 66 degrees in Boston. You're with WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Fisher Investments. Fisher Investments' team of specialists tailor portfolios to each client's long-term goals. Learn more at fisherinvestments.com. Investments in securities involve the risk of loss. From Workday, an enterprise management cloud focused on providing organizations with a system to continuously plan for all what-if scenarios. Workday the finance, HR, and planning system for a changing world. And from the Doris Duke Foundation. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Faldil in Washington, D.C. And I'm A. Martinez in Culver City, California. Senator Mitch McConnell's freeze-up at a news conference last week is raising questions about how much longer he can serve as the senior U.S. senator for Kentucky. A spokesperson says McConnell plans to finish his term, which ends in 2027, but lawmakers are wondering what could happen if he were to step down. Back in 2021, Kentucky's Republican-led legislature passed a law ensuring that McConnell's possible successor would be a Republican. The state's Democratic governor, Andy Bashir vetoed the bill, but he was overruled by the legislature. For more, I'm joined now by Austin Horn, who is a politics reporter for the Lexington Herald-Leader. Austin, so what is Governor 
Governor Bashir's argument against the current law. Good morning, A. Uh, the argument against presented in the governor's old veto message is based on the U.S. Constitution's 17th Amendment. It's kind of one of those amendments we often forget about. And in 1912, it allowed voters to cast direct votes for U.S. senators. And prior to its passage, senators were chosen by legislatures. The governor's office has been careful to not make a comment on this front in recent days, but it's kind of the consensus among Kentucky Democrats and those in the Capitol that Bashir would be inclined to push back, either by appointing a Democrat, unlike the law says, mm. or stalling and challenging the law. Or, you know, he could always follow the law, but that's not expected. Okay. Now, if Senator McConnell were to step down, other than the options you just gave us, I mean, he's limited to that, right? That's, he can't really do much else. Right. He could choose to follow that law, um, or he could either stall or appoint a Democrat and, yeah. and kind of ignore the law in, in that way as well. In Kentucky, how crucial is Mitch McConnell to the Republican Party? Yeah, he's often called the godfather of uh, Kentucky Republican politics here. It's hard to overstate how integral he's been and still is to the state GOP, even on kind of granular decision-making levels. I mean, the state headquarters is even named after him. When he first took his seat in 1984, Kentucky politics was dominated by Democrats. And now, after years with McConnell at the top of the party, the state house is 80-20 Republican, and the federal delegation's largely Republican, too. Senator McConnell, we know, has fallen a couple of times, actually physically fallen a few times in the in recent months. So what potential issues does that present for Republicans? You're right. And it's hard to deny that his health has become a source of speculation in the state. The Republicans are outwardly really confident of his health. It, in private, it, it is another story, though. And I think one big material concern in the party should a vacancy occur is is who fills the vacuum as the anchor of the party in the state uh could our junior senator become more involved at the state level or could could one of our higher profile congressmen like a thomas massey or james comer reach for that seat or you know we may get a republican governor soon all right austin horn with the lexington herald leader austin thanks thank you Ashley Hemmers says she was driving through Nevada last week, headed to a meeting about the climate crisis, when she got heat stroke. That's how hot it is out west. It's too hot to figure out how to stop being so hot. Hemmers is the tribal administrator for the Fort Mojave Indian tribe, and at the meeting in question, she was planning on representing the special concerns that people on her reservation have about climate change. On my reservation, it can get upwards of 120 on the day that I got heat stroke, it was about 125. If you don't take the time to really slow it down a little bit or have even a little bit more water intake, a drive from the reservation to the airport, which is about an hour and a half, could put you in some very dangerous situations. So you didn't get to that meeting, but talk about what you had planned to highlight about how vulnerable people living on reservations are and how the climate crisis impacts them. My reservation is in California, Arizona, Nevada. 
There's a saying for Mojave people that you know that you're a Mojave if you can eat a hot bowl of stew in the middle of the summer. Heat is not something that's unusual. What is unusual is just how hot it's getting. Mm. And we are taking this very seriously for our community. Our tribal leadership makes sure that vulnerable populations like our elders have cooling stations or any type of emergency checks. If an elder has air conditioning that goes down, we make sure that they and their family know how to get help immediately. We need our elders. There are language holders. There are culture sharers. Another thing that we are doing, we've had to remind folks that when you're walking to make sure that you have shoes on because we had had tribal members who have gotten second degree burns from just standing outside of their house. And then on a broader scale, try to identify ways where we could make sure that we are building safe spaces on the reservation, whether that's green space or cooling stations or all of those things. When you talk about green spaces, how could that help and and what are you doing? For us, we live right along the Colorado River. And, you know, the Colorado River is in a current crisis because of the extreme heat. It's drying up. Our tribal name is Pipa Hamakov, people of the river. Our community have lived along the river in this desert since time immemorial. And so what we've tried to do with our new housing developments is to create safe green spaces for families with local trees, local flora and fauna, so that there are enough spaces to kind of combat against the concrete that would be everywhere. So really this climate crisis between the drying of the river and the extreme heat is a threat to community and identity for living on your historic lands. For us, it's it's one of the highest threats. It impacts our geography. It impacts the ways that we teach our children about indigenous ecological knowledge of the desert. It impacts the animals and plants that rely on the river. This is something that we need to steward a lot more efficiently because if we keep extracting from our environment, then it's not just going to be heat stroke and second and third degree burns. It's going to be losing people's lives. Ashley Hammers is the tribal administrator for the Fort Mojave Indian Reservation, which lies in Nevada, California, and Arizona. Thank you. Thank you so much. This is NPR News. Coming up at the top of the hour on WBMR's Morning Edition, tens of thousands of people are set to lose their jobs as trucking company Yellow announces plans to shut down just a few years after it got massive a massive federal pandemic loan to stay afloat. 
And today at 11 on Radio Boston, Boston Mayor Michelle Wu, she'll be talking about the infighting on the city council, the NAACP convention, and more. Listen this morning here on 90.9 WBUR and on the WBUR app. Just a few clouds today, otherwise clear skies with temperatures rising to the low 80s. Tonight it dips into the low 60s, a little cooler tomorrow, upper 70s under sunny skies. Right now it's 67 degrees in Boston. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Plymouth Rock Assurance, auto and home insurance that strives to treat you with kindness and humanity because they believe there's never been a better time for nice. PlymouthRock.com. And Cityside Subaru, featuring the all-new, all-electric Subaru Solterra on Route 60 in Belmont and at CitysideSubaru.com. It's a Subaru summer. Cambridge-based Mersana Therapeutics is cutting 100 workers. That's about half of its staff. The move comes after the biotech says its therapy, meant to treat ovarian cancer, did not meet its primary goals. The biotech's stock has lost two-thirds of its value in the last week. Worcester-based Table Talk Pies is planning to grow. It nearly shut down one year ago before being bought out by the owner of the Worcester Railers minor league hockey team. The Boston Globe reports that since then, the company has appointed a new president and is is planning an expansion in both its manufacturing and product lines. Stock in Boston Beer Company is up more than 16 percent in pre-market trading. Investors are happy the maker of Sam Adams beat expectations in its second quarter earnings. The company credits its Twisted Tea products, which it says had strong sales over the July 4th holiday. It's 744. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Easy Cater, committed to helping companies find food for meetings and team lunches with catering menus from restaurants nationwide, online ordering and 24-7 live support. EasyCater.com. From Indeed, a hiring platform designed to streamline the hiring process. Indeed works to help businesses attract, interview and hire candidates in one place. More at Indeed.com slash NPR. And from the Doris Duke Foundation. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Faldin. And I'm A. Martinez. Summertime draws hundreds of millions of people to the nation's most popular parks and recreation areas. A group in Colorado wants to make maps and signage for these sites more welcoming. Here's Aspen Public Radio's Caroline Yanis. At the Red Hill Recreation Area Trailhead in Carbondale, about 30 miles northwest of Aspen, the parking lot isn't full yet at 9 a.m., but it's getting there. Looking at the sagebrush and red rock formations, you nearly forget you're right next to the state highway. Nearly all of the hikers getting on and off the trail here have been white and spoken English. Christian Lamont with California-based Latino Outdoors says that's pretty common at trailheads across the country. And that can be a barrier to getting other folks outdoors. And so there is this perception that you don't belong because you don't see yourself. And that goes from the casual hiker to the park ranger. That's one obstacle. Another is a lack of recreation maps in Spanish, and trailhead signs are typically only in English. We tell people, like, 
come to this trail and oftentimes they get there and they're like, now what? Do you feel welcome? Is this a place for you? Do you understand where you're going? Like really important signage. But here at Red Hill, the signs on trail etiquette and the local ecosystem are in Spanish and English. That's great for Tigini Roshin and her husband. Natives of Mexico, they've lived in Carbondale for more than 20 years. They live here, she says, and have the freedom to get out and enjoy the outdoors and fresh air. They'd love to be able to hike with others, but this is one of a handful of trailheads with signs in Spanish. Roshin says oftentimes their friends and other local Latinos don't feel comfortable navigating the trails with information only in English. Pienso que tal vez el no saber dónde están, qué tan difíciles son. This valley, with Aspen at one end, has a population that is close to 30% Latino. Lots of those folks work long hours in the area's resort economy, and Roshin says many of them don't have the time or energy to research recreation options on their own, which are mostly described in English. Local advocacy group Defiende Nuestra Tierra is the one that got the signs translated into Spanish at this trailhead. It also created a Spanish-language map of 19 areas on nearby public lands. El Camino Latino includes information on what you can do at each, like hiking, biking, camping, and picnicking, how difficult the trails are, and whether an area has bilingual signage. Y la intención es de, de esto es pues, generar cultura de la caminata, del, al aire libre sobre todo. That's Omar Sarabia, director of Defiende Nuestra Tierra. He says the intention is to create a culture of hiking, of the outdoors. Especially after COVID, he says now people can grab this map and say, OK, I have 16 options. Where can I go? There's still work to be done. Most trails around the valley don't have bilingual signage. And other hikers pointed out that future versions of El Camino Latino could include information about wildlife. But hikers like Tigini Groshin say the map and more trail signs in Spanish are an important step in helping her community feel like it belongs on Colorado's trails. For NPR News, I'm Caroline Yanez. This is NPR News. Coming up at 8.25 on WBUR's Morning Edition, researchers have found that hot summer temperatures don't just impact people's bodies. They also have an effect on cognition and mood. It's 7.49. I'm Steve Inskeep. Around the world... Our co-host Leila Fadel has been reporting from Ukraine. In your community... Workers are unionizing in fields where they haven't always had a big presence. And farther afield... Think really far, like out of this world. And liftoff of Artemis 1. Morning Edition from NPR News takes you wherever the story is. Listen every weekday. Listen again tomorrow morning on 90.9 WBUR. Here's a look at some of the stories we're following this Monday morning. An employee of former President Trump will appear in federal court today on charges he helped obstruct officials investigating the mishandling of classified documents. Police in Pakistan are investigating a suicide bombing yesterday at a political rally that killed at least 45 people and injured dozens more.
And a New Hampshire nurse and her young daughter are reportedly being held captive after they were kidnapped in Haiti. Stay up to date on the news all day here on 90.9 WBUR and on the WBUR app. WBUR supporters include MIFA, the Massachusetts Educational Financing Authority, providing resources and tools to help you navigate the college planning process, including customized plans of savings, loans, and guidance with webinars, calculators, and an informative podcast. More information at MEFA.org. Low 80s and mostly sunny today. Clouds move in tonight and it falls to the low 60s, sunny tomorrow, and upper 70s. Right now it's 67 degrees in Boston. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm e. Martinez. And I'm Leila Faldil. The CDC says close to half a million Americans might be living with an allergy to meat, and many haven't been diagnosed. Alpha-gal syndrome refers to the allergy that can develop following Lone Star tick bites. Dr. Scott Cummins is an allergy specialist at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. He's an expert in alpha-gal syndrome, sometimes referred to as the red meat allergy. It's definitely more than just not eating steak because anywhere between 30 to 50 percent of patients with AGS have to avoid dairy in all forms. And avoid products that contain gelatin and more. Some of our medications are truly derived from animals, so it goes well beyond just avoiding red meat. Symptoms of alpha-gal syndrome include itching and hives, but some people can have more serious reactions, such as Candace Mathis found out as she was bitten by a tick in 2009. I woke up in the middle of the night several times after eating pork sausage and my blood pressure tanked. I had horrible GI distress, almost passed out. And initially, she was told she had other allergies. Mathis was given supplements with meat-based ingredients. Five days into that regimen, I woke up to the room spinning, seeing double, my heart racing. Mathis was having a severe allergic reaction. Her misdiagnosis may not be surprising, given that a CDC survey of healthcare providers found 42% of them had not even heard of alpha-gal syndrome. But Dr. Scott Cummins says it only takes a simple test to confirm that someone has the allergy. The blood test itself basically detects the presence of the allergic response to the alpha-gal sugar. That's the sugar that gets transmitted to humans by the ticks, which are spreading. The Lone Star ticks are really found throughout the southeast in the mid-Atlantic states and now extending up into the Great Lake areas. So if you're hiking in those regions, Cummins recommends staying out of long grass, regularly checking for ticks, and using repellents. And after being diagnosed with alpha-gal syndrome in 2019, Mathis and a friend are now raising awareness about AGS. Debbie and I were actually diagnosed three months apart. So we began a blog called Two Alpha Gals, um, and we are now helping other people navigate this lifestyle um, and helping them find joy again. Making alpha gal sound less like an allergy and more like a superpower. Now to China for a story about a mysterious blogger and a woman left to discover who her husband really was after police hauled him away. NPR's John Ruich has more from Shanghai. Police came to arrest Ran Xiaohuan on a hot day in May 2021. His wife, Bei Jianying, was in the kitchen. That day at midday, he was in his study. He was always in his study. I was preparing lunch. 
The police separated them and confiscated their phones and computers. They told Bay her husband had an overseas blog and was suspected of subverting state power. I was really scared. I couldn't imagine my husband could write such things if he'd done what they said. Bay was incredulous at first. Her husband was a nerd, a computer programmer who had worked on internet security during the 2008 Olympics in Beijing. He was an independent thinker, but he wasn't openly political and generally minded his own business. He would hole up in his study for hours, doing what he said was work. I talked with his parents. We thought my husband wouldn't have been scared to write a few sensitive things, but it was impossible given his character that it could have been very extreme. Bay didn't know it at the time, but her husband had apparently been keeping a blog called Program Think. It taught people how to scale China's so-called Great Firewall to access blocked overseas websites. It mapped out the connections and wealth of senior Communist Party members, and it pushed back hard against Beijing's propaganda. Xiao Chang, with the University of California Berkeley's School of Information, says the blog was eloquent, logical, and important. His blog became a magnet, attract actually hundreds of thousands of people. Who read this person? Who just like them? They they live inside of China within the Great Firewall, but are capable of thinking independently to see through the propaganda. And program think pulled off something extraordinary. He says the blogger used his cybersecurity expertise to stay anonymous and keep active for twelve years. It was a period of ever tightening restrictions on speech in China. So all of this element adds together. Made him a sort of mystical status. Bei Jianying didn't know any of it. Months went by after Ran's arrest. His lawyers refused to divulge details about the case, saying it involved state secrets. Um, after I learned how to get over the Great Firewall, I went to an internet cafe to get online. She went to a foreign search engine blocked in China and typed in the words "missing blogger." An article popped up about Program Think. My husband is so straight that he wouldn't pick a fun or fancy blog name. It would be something direct, like Program Think. And I thought, huh, it might be him. The writing style was familiar too. There was a reference to V for Vendetta, which was one of her husband's favorite films. Then she looked at posts around the end of 2017 and early 2018, a time when Ron was sick in bed. I checked, and in the posts around that time, each one said, "Sorry, I've been really busy these days, so I'm late in posting this." And then I knew for sure it was him. It was too big a coincidence, and so is this. Program Think's last post was on May 9th, 2021. Police took Ran Xiaohuan away the next day. This February, he was sentenced to seven years in prison. Bay is working on his appeal and trying to support him in every way she can. So this past spring, on weekends, Bay would drive her scooter up to a towering wall in an apartment complex in Shanghai. On the other side is the detention center where her husband is locked up. She turned on a loudspeaker with a pre-recorded message. I am telling him we know he's programmed think. The message says his friends and the international community are now following his case. And it says we hope he won't be down, and that he can relax because his family is still safe. Bay is determined to fight for her husband's freedom, but if indeed Ran Xiaohuan is programmed, think as is widely suspected now, 
the chances seem slim that a legal appeal will lead to him being released. John Ruich, NPR News, Shanghai. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Amy Martinez. And I'm Leila Faldin. We'll have temperatures in the 70s and low 80s throughout the week, beginning with partly sunny skies and low 80s today. Temperatures fall to the low 60s tonight. Then we'll have clear skies and upper 70s tomorrow. Right now it's 67 degrees in Boston, and we're coming up on 8 o'clock. I'm On Point executive producer Jonathan Dyer, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUH-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Police in Pakistan are investigating a massive suicide bombing that killed dozens of people at the rally of a pro-Taliban cleric. It's Monday, July 31st. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. Good morning, Arupa Shanoi. Coming up, some 30,000 people are losing their jobs as the trucking company Yellow shuts down just three years after receiving a $700 million federal bailout. And this hour, this month marks 14 years since the last hike to the federal minimum wage. Now activists say $7.25 an hour isn't enough. Now we need at least a $17 minimum wage. We're talking about a living wage so somebody can eat meat twice a week and have a basic used car and afford a basic apartment. Also, researchers say the rise in summer temperatures may impact the way people think and feel. In sports, Red Sox lose mostly sunny and low 80s today. It's 8.01. Now the news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Corva Coleman. The heat wave is concentrating on the central U.S. today. Heat indexes will be well into the triple digits from Wichita to New Orleans. Health officials are warning people to do all they can to stay cool. Activist Sabrina Pacha is with the group Healthy Air and Water Colorado. She says that's harder in communities of color, which often have fewer trees. In Denver, we have a neighborhood that is 88% residents of color, and just 3% of their neighborhood has tree cover. In comparison to another part of the city where um, just 15% of residents are of color, and they have upwards of 17% of tree cover. Problems with heat are amplified in cities. They're subject to something called the urban heat island effect. Fewer trees and more asphalt make it tougher for urban areas to cool off. A hearing resumes tomorrow to determine whether a convicted Michigan school shooter will get life in prison without parole. Lawyers for Ethan Crumbly say he was so young at the time of the Oxford High School shooting in 2021 that he can be rehabilitated. From member station WDET, Quinn Kleinfelter has more. Prosecutors described how then-15-year-old Ethan Crumbly took a handgun bought for him by his parents, calmly killed four students and shot seven other people, then waited to see the pain he'd inflicted. They say that demands a life sentence without the chance for parole. 
but the defense counters that 15-year-old brains are not fully developed, and Crumbly never received any mental health care. An expert on prison rehabilitation, Dr. Kenneth Romanowski, said juveniles convicted of even the most heinous crimes can reform. Honestly, I think everybody has a potential to change, and I think Mr. Crumbly would be no exception to that rule. But I think he has to make that choice. Defense attorneys say Crumbly himself might also take the stand. For NPR News, I'm Quen Kleinfelter in Detroit. A relief group in Haiti says a nurse from New Hampshire and her child have been kidnapped in Haiti. NPR's Joe Hernandez reports that last week, the State Department urged Americans to leave Haiti because of rising gang violence, crime, and disease. Elroy Haiti says on its website that Alex Dorsonville and her child were kidnapped from the aid group's campus outside Port-au-Prince on Thursday. Dorsonville is a nurse with the organization as well as the wife of its founder. In a statement, Elroy Haiti said, quote, Alex is a deeply compassionate and loving person who considers Haiti her home and the Haitian people her friends and family. A spokesperson for the U.S. State Department says it has no higher priority than the safety and security of U.S. citizens overseas and that it's in contact with Haitian authorities. Unrest in the Caribbean nation has worsened recently with a rise in kidnappings and other violence committed by armed gangs. Joe Hernandez, NPR News. This is NPR. At least 45 people have been killed in a suicide bombing in Pakistan. A bomber attacked a political rally over the weekend and injured scores more people. No one's claimed responsibility for the blast. The rally was for supporters of a cleric who backs the Taliban. He was not at the event. Palestinians in Gaza have been taking to the streets to protest Hamas. Natan Odenheimer has more from Jerusalem. Chance of Hania Abbas, where is the electricity, where is the gas, echoed through the streets of Gaza on Sunday, marking a rare display of outrage against the Hamas government. Thousands of Palestinians took to several locations to demand better living conditions, and in one location, burned Hamas flags. In response, Hamas security forces cracked down on the protesters, breaking smartphones to destroy any visual evidence of the demonstration. All this while Palestinian factions, including the Hamas leadership, convened for a summit in Egypt. For NPR News, I'm Natan Odenheimer in Jerusalem. An associate of former President Donald Trump is expected to appear in federal court today in Florida. Carlos de Oliveira works at Trump's Florida resort. He's accused of obstructing federal officials trying to retrieve classified documents that were improperly stored there. Trump faces many counts of allegedly mishandling classified documents. Officials with the Teamsters Union say freight company Yellow has stopped operations and will soon file for bankruptcy. The union represents the company's drivers. I'm Corva Coleman, NPR News from Washington. This is WBUR in Boston. I'm Rupa Shinoy. Today on Beacon Hill, State House and Senate leaders plan to vote on a budget for this fiscal year. WBUR Samantha Kutsia tells us that's despite the fiscal year starting one month ago. The legislature came to an agreement on the $56 billion proposal over the weekend. More than $6 billion of the budget is set to go to schools. Another billion will go to cities and towns as unrestricted aid. The spending package also includes money to make community colleges free by next year. The agreement comes as the state's been operating on an interim budget for the last month. The bill will head to Governor Healy if it passes through the legislature today. 
For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Smitha Kutsia. Senator Ed Markey has announced he's reintroducing legislation aimed at protecting Americans from heat-related illness. It would direct funds to community projects to reduce the health impact of the heat. He spoke with reporters in Chelsea, a city that Markey says is intensely affected by the heat. Resulting in part from the practice of historic redlining, these communities have less tree cover, more pavement, and consequently higher temperatures. The bill would also create a federal committee to address extreme heat nationwide. The National Weather Service confirms a tornado hit Easton and Foxborough during our stormy weather on Saturday. Investigators say the storm traveled about a quarter of a mile. It packed winds of about 105 miles an hour. Fortunately, no one was hurt and damage was minimal. This was the third tornado to hit New England in the last month. Experts say this year, New Hampshire's water bodies will see their highest number of cyanobacteria blooms ever reported. Cyanobacteria can cause mild to severe health side effects in people who come into contact with it. Kate Hastings monitors the bacteria for the state. She says it's been a problem all year in New Hampshire. We have broken the record for the total number of advisories recorded within each month so far this year. So May, June, and July already, in addition to setting the record for the most advisories ever issued within one month uh, that was set this past June. Eleven freshwater beaches in Massachusetts are closed right now because of cyanobacteria. It's 808. WBUR supporters include the Rockefeller Foundation making opportunity universal and sustainable for over 100 years. The Red Sox lost to the Giants 4-3 in 11 innings yesterday in San Francisco. The Sox will visit the Seattle Mariners tonight. Mostly sunny today, it'll be around 80, partly cloudy overnight with temperatures in the lower 60s. Sunny tomorrow and in the upper 70s. Right now it's 67 degrees in Boston. Thanks for starting your day with WBUR. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. Amy Martinez in Culver City, California. And I'm Leila Faldil in Washington, D.C. Good morning. The federal minimum wage hasn't budged in 14 years. It's $7.25. In just a few minutes, we hear from a faith leader who wants to change that. But first, more difficult news for American workers. Some 30,000 people are losing their jobs as the shipping company Yellow appears to have collapsed. During the pandemic, the government deemed yellow essential to national security and propped it up with $700 million in loans. NPR's Camilla Demonoski joins us now to talk about what's happening. Good morning, Camilla. Good morning, Mila. So Yellow isn't a household name like FedEx. If you could just Mm -hmm. tell us what this company is. Yeah, folks might have seen the trucks on freeways. They say yellow on an orange background. Mm. Um, And it used to be known as YRC Freight. This is the third biggest company in the less than truckload sector, which is if you have to ship something that's bigger than a parcel, too big for a parcel service, but not big enough to take up an entire shipping container, you use a company like this. We're talking about 30,000 jobs here, right? This is significant. Jack Atkins is an analyst who tracks this industry. This is the largest trucking bankruptcy in the history of the United States. I mean, it's almost hard for me to wrap my mind around, even though it's been the, the main thing we've been working on for the last you know, few months. He actually drove out to his nearest yellow terminal over the weekend and just looked at the chained up gates. Hmm. What have we heard from the company about the shutdown? 
from Yellow, nothing. They mm. haven't responded to our requests for comment. But the Teamsters, which represent their unionized drivers, say that they have been notified that the company is shutting down. The union had previously warned drivers to pick up their personal items from work and prepare for the worst. The filing itself is expected as early as today. And what do we know about why the company is going bankrupt? Yeah, this has been seen coming for a little while now, and the company has previously blamed the Teamsters. Yellow has been trying to restructure when executives say that that's essential in order for the company to, would have been essential for the company to survive. In legal filings, they said the union was blocking the effort to restructure and, quote, knowingly and intentionally triggered a death spiral for Yellow. Just this month, the threat of a strike scared a lot of customers away. Uh, mm. Atkins, that analyst, called it a mortal blow. The Teamsters say that it's the company's gross mismanagement that caused the underlying problems here. That's not the workers' fault. And that strike threat, it was triggered because the company wasn't paying for pensions and benefits. So it's a symptom of financial woes in addition to being a cause. Hmm. The Teamsters are obviously the same union that just successfully negotiated a big deal with UPS. UPS is a big and a very healthy trucking company. Yellow is a different situation. It was deeply indebted and had been in financial trouble for years. Now, we mentioned that the government declared this company essential to national security. Does this mean the U.S. is less safe without it? Yeah, there's no reason to think that. A, mm. a congressional oversight board has raised a lot of red flags about this pandemic era loan to the company, including, yeah, why would the third largest less than truckload shipper be essential to national security when other companies can ship this stuff too? There's no good answer to that, really. Mm. The government didn't just give out this big loan. It actually took a stake in the company. So the U.S. Treasury, which is to say all of us, is actually now the largest single shareholder in yellow. Yellow was losing money even before the pandemic. So this oversight board said, you know, it seems like the government's probably not going to get its money back, which is an assessment that certainly looks accurate right about now. I'm PR's Camilla Domanowski. Thank you, Camilla. Thanks, Layla. 14 years ago this month, the federal minimum wage was raised to $7.25 an hour, and it hasn't gone up since. 30 states have a higher minimum wage, but even that may not be enough to allow low-wage workers to build anything close to a comfortable life. Take this example of a fast food worker in Oceanside, California. My name is Sergio Valderrama, and I work for McDonald's for the last 12 years, uh, and I get paid today $16.50 an hour. I did ask for a raise, but uh, it was years back. Um, they said there was not enough money because, you know, the stores were not doing very good. And they only gave me like a 10 cents raise. And that's been the only raise they gave me in the last 12 years that I worked there. That's coming from me asking them. It's kind of tough, you know, because even though we may, I make sixteen fifty an hour there, which is, you know, a little bit above, you know, the $15 minimum wage thing in California, things keep going up. You know, the prices are going up. I have my wife. And uh, my two kids, my wife's name is Elsa, and my son's uh, name Junior. My daughter is Bianca. And uh, my son is going to turn uh, 20 this year, and he's uh, studying right now at, at college. My daughter, well, she's only 14. She'll be 15 at, at the end of the year, and uh, she's still going through school. For almost the last 10 years, we've been living in a studio. We have the bedroom and the dining room and the kitchen table and everything almost in the same spot. 
So it's been kind of tough. You know, the way I see it, if I get paid more money, I'll be at least able to put some money aside for a rainy day or for a vacation. I probably take in three vacations in my entire life. To be honest with you, I think, you know, you know how they say not all the money in the world will make it better because I know we're not going to get a huge, you know, relief if we do get, you know, the, the wages to go up. But, you know, how they say, you know, every little bit counts. One person who's campaigned for years to raise the federal minimum wage is the Reverend William Barber, co-chair of the Poor People's Campaign. We live in a time when poverty now is the fourth leading cause of death in this country. Poverty, higher than homicide, higher than respiratory disease, higher than gun violence. When we spoke, he began by highlighting a Senate vote two years ago that saw eight Democrats join 50 Republicans in voting down a bid to increase the nation's minimum wage to $15 an hour. It's been a bipartisan no. When Republicans have controlled the Congress on both sides of the island president, they've not done it. When Democrats are controlled, they've not done it. But the fact is, we were in the middle of COVID when we were declaring that workers were essential, essential workers, a large majority of essential workers are low-wage workers. And Congress people and everybody was saying how much we loved them. But from fast food workers to even people in our police force to meat packers were making less than a living wage. What's the explanation that you've heard as to why this gap, 14 years, has happened? Well, I think there are four things. Number one is the lie that raising the minimum wage to a living wage would enhance inflation and raise prices, which has been debunked time and time again by economists. Secondly, this ongoing historical lie that poor and low-wage people are their own problem. It's their personal immorality rather than the immorality of society that doesn't provide a living wage. The third reason that we often hear is that $7.25 an hour puts you above the poverty level. Well, that's actually absurd. And then the last reason we end up not doing it is because rather than putting a face on who's actually being hurt by the lack of living wage. We get lost in these culture wars, like fighting trans people or fighting immigrants, which is all a distraction because the extremists who push all of that stuff, what they don't want the public to know is that they are the very ones also blocking living wages and health care. Reverend, 30 states have a minimum wage higher than the federal level. So how much of a big issue is it nationally? Well, just because it's above 725 or 8 or 9 is still not a living wage. And actually, the living wage should be somewhere near $20. That's why when I hit the road with Bernie Sanders a few weeks, we're talking about it. Now we need at least a $17 minimum wage. We're talking about a living wage so somebody can eat meat twice a week and, and have a basic used car and afford a basic apartment. There's not a county in this country where a person working at 725 can afford a basic two-room apartment in America, the wealthiest nation in the world. Reverend, why shouldn't states uh, have different minimum wages, considering that states have very different economies? So California, which is at 1550 per hour, is one of the largest economies in the world, much different than, say, Alabama, that's at 725. We need a federal response for all people. That's when it was put in place in 1938. At the, the, we need a minimum wage, and then states can 
go up beyond that based on some of the particularities around that state. But the minimum should not be less than 15 or $17 across the board. What we're saying is this country should say morally and politically at a minimum, we're not going to have a country where people can work every day of their lives and not be able to afford the basic necessities of life. You travel around the country trying to promote a higher minimum wage. So what is it about this that's made it such a part of your life? I was a pastor for 40 years, almost 30 years at one church. When people die because they don't have health care, I had to bury them. When people are stressed out and die and stroke out because they're working so hard, I had to bury them. And I could not stand up in that pulpit and say, God called them home. And this was a natural death. This is policy murder. I've had to watch families be torn apart because they they couldn't they they never were home with each other because they were trying to do everything they could, and they or or just living in so much anger because they would see these politicians getting all this money and all these CEOs getting this money and all they wanted all they wanted was a living wage. That's all. They just wanted the basics of life. That's Reverend William Barber, founder of the Center for Public Theology and Public Policy at Yale University and co-chair of the Poor People's Campaign. Thank you very much. Thank you so much. This is NPR News. Good morning. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Thanks for starting your week with WBUR. Coming up in 15 minutes on Morning Edition, Russian missiles have pummeled Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky's hometown one day after Ukrainian drones struck two office buildings near the Kremlin. It's 820. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. On All Things Considered, I try to drive hard questions. Well, your old car can drive our whole program. Consider donating it. And thanks. Just go to WBUR.org. Since the start of Russia's invasion of Ukraine, experts in the U.S. and Europe have lamented that the global South hasn't taken a strong stance against Russia. What's behind their caution toward aligning with the West? The situation in the global South is nuanced. It's not black and white. But more needs to be done to engage with the global South. That's On Point this morning at 10 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Mostly sunny today with a high near 82, partly cloudy tonight and the low around 62. Tomorrow, sunny with a high near 78. Right now, it's 68 degrees in Boston. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Hint, maker of fruit-infused water with no sugar or diet sweeteners. Available in more than 25 flavors, including watermelon and pineapple. In stores or delivered from HintWater.com. From the Kauffman Foundation providing access to opportunities that help people achieve financial stability, upward mobility, and economic prosperity, regardless of race, gender, or geography. Kaufman.org. From Capital One, with the Capital One Quicksilver card. Details at CapitalOne.com. What's in your wallet? Credit approval required. Capital One Bank, USA, NA. And from listeners like you, who donate to this NPR station. 
This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm e. Martinez. And I'm Leila Faldil. Dozens of young Latino men in California have developed severe lung disease, and at least 10 have died after working in shops that make kitchen and bathroom countertops. As NPR's Nell Greenfield Boyce reports, public health experts believe there are many more sick workers in the countertop industry. For countertops, there's a popular material called quartz. Quartz is a kind of engineered stone. Folks like Martha Stewart have extolled its virtues. Quartz needs no sealing or polishing like granite or marble. It will always remain glossy and smooth. But compared to granite or marble, quartz contains a lot more of the mineral silica. Silica dust can fly into the air when a slab of raw countertop material gets cut to order. And this dust can damage the lungs. So in recent years, when cases of lung disease started appearing in the countertop industry, public health experts became worried. Things are heading in the direction that we feared. You know, we've had more and more people presenting very severely Shafali Gandhi is a pulmonologist at the University of California, San Francisco. She and some colleagues have just published a report describing over 50 sick countertop workers in California. Some died or needed lung transplants. Almost all were Spanish-speaking Latino men. And they're all very young. Now, work sites can control silica dust with ventilation, sprays of water, and proper masks. But California's Workplace Safety Agency says it looks like most countertop fabrication shops in its state are not complying with federal silica rules. That's why the agency has fast-tracked the development of new protections for these workers. David Goldsmith is an epidemiologist at George Washington University. He says the newly reported cases in California are concerning. I am certain that this is an underestimate of the severity of the problem in California and by inference the whole United States. He says it seems that other states aren't paying as much attention to this, despite an urgent need to figure out how widespread this kind of lung disease in the countertop industry really is. Nell Greenfield Boyce, NPR News. All right, it's no surprise that extreme heat can put our bodies at risk, but what's been less understood is how heat waves can influence our cognition and mood. NPR's Allison Aubrey reports there's increasing evidence that living in hotter conditions can slow down our thinking and may make us cranky or irritated as well. It's well known that babies, children, and elderly people can be vulnerable to the heat, but several summers back, researchers on a college campus in Boston wanted to know how young adults living in college dorms were influenced by a heat wave. Here's study author Memo Cedeno Laron. We were able to study students living in these dormitories. Some of them had air conditioning and some of them didn't have. Every morning for 12 consecutive days, the students took two quick tests administered on their cell phones. One was simple math, addition and subtraction, and a second test called the Stroop test jumbles colors and words with the aim of confusing you. So, for example, if I show the word red in the color blue, participants have to respond blue. It's easy to get tripped up if your attention or reaction time is slowed, says Cedeno Laron, who's now an assistant professor at Rutgers University. And that's exactly what happened with the young adults sleeping in dorms with no AC. They did worse on the tests. The magnitude of the effect was really striking. So we saw reductions in the order of 10 percent 
in the response times and also their accuracy to these cognitive tests. The air-conditioned dorms averaged about 71 degrees compared to 80 degrees in the dorms with no AC. Only a nine-degree difference, but for people who aren't used to the heat, the warmer dorms may have disrupted their sleep, which may help explain the poorer test scores. Physician Caleb Dresser of the Harvard School of Public Health says the findings fit with a broader body of evidence. There have been studies on students, on older adults, on office workers. There have been studies looking at standardized test score performance. And all of these seem to point to a reduced ability to think clearly and quickly and efficiently when the body is too hot. Beyond slowing down our thinking, Dr. Dresser, who's an emergency medicine physician, says there's also evidence that heat waves can influence mood and anxiety. He points to a study published last year in the medical journal JAMA Psychiatry based on a 10-year evaluation. It found hospital ER visits for all kinds of mental health conditions rise when it's very hot outside. I think this is consistent with what a lot of physicians will tell you if they have worked during hot conditions, which is that people can be having a rough time. And mental health issues certainly are a concern all the time, but can sometimes become a bigger concern during really hot conditions. Multiple factors may explain how heat could exacerbate anxiety, aggression, or even agitation. For instance, hot conditions may induce a stress response and drive up levels of the stress hormone cortisol. Heat can interfere with good sleep, which can also influence mood. And Dr. Dresser says in terms of increased hospital visits for mood and anxiety-related conditions, there could also be a broader explanation. People who are living with mental health issues that's a population that also overlaps with being unhoused or maybe having intermittent access to housing. And so there may be more complicated social issues going on. A better understanding of all these factors could help inform strategies to prevent or manage these challenges. And Dr. Dresser says what is clear is that heat is increasingly a public safety issue. What that means for all of us as we learn to live in a warming world where the summers are getting hotter is that we need to be extra alert to recognizing when conditions are dangerous and taking steps to stay safe. One of the key steps to stay safe is to stay well hydrated, which may sound so obvious, but it turns up time and time again in cases of heat-related illness. And even in the college dorm study, it turned out that students who slept in the hot dorms but stayed well hydrated did better on the tests, a sign that something as simple as drinking more water can help protect not just our physical health, but our mental well-being too. Allison Aubrey, NPR News. Support for NPR health coverage comes from Procter & Gamble, maker of Metamucil, a fiber supplement containing psyllium, a plant-based fiber for trapping and removing waste in the digestive system, designed to be taken every day. More at metamucil.com. This is NPR News. Today's top stories are next and coming up in about 15 minutes on WBUR's Morning Edition. For the first time since 1991, the U.S. could miss making the Women's World Cup knockout round. It's 829. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Loomis Sales, where portfolio managers, research analysts, and traders work together to help clients reach their financial goals. Learn more at LoomisSales.com.
Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. Large wildfires continue burning in nearly a dozen states, mostly in the western U.S. Many of the fires are burning in New Mexico, Arizona, Alaska, Idaho, and California. In one city in Los Angeles County, authorities are deploying 300 goats to graze on dried-up vegetation along steep hillsides and canyons. Patty Mundo with the Glendale Fire Department says the goal is to eliminate fuel for wildfires. If we were to have a fire here, it'll uh, slow it or hopefully stop it. She says the idea to bring in goats to help out was suggested by local residents. Extreme heat is expected again today in almost a dozen states. Heat warnings and advisories are in effect in much of Texas, Oklahoma and Kansas, all of Louisiana, the Florida Panhandle and other areas in the south. The shipping company Yellow has ceased operations ahead of an expected bankruptcy filing. NPR's Camila Dominoski says roughly 30,000 people, including many truck drivers, will lose their jobs, and the company blames the Teamsters Union. Yellow has been trying to restructure. In legal filings, they said the union was blocking the effort to restructure and, quote, knowingly and intentionally triggered a death spiral for Yellow. The Teamsters say that it's the company's gross mismanagement that caused the underlying problems here. Police in Pakistan say they suspect militants affiliated with ISIS were responsible for yesterday's deadly bombing near the Afghan border. At least 45 people were killed and dozens more wounded when a suicide bomber attacked a political rally. So far, there's been no claim of responsibility. Sweden and Denmark are considering changes to their laws to discourage demonstrators from burning Korans or other religious books. As Terry Schultz reports, such burnings have provoked violent reactions in some Muslim countries. Danish Foreign Minister Lars Lukas Rasmussen says the increasing number of Koran burning incidents in his country is creating too much division, and the government is considering a ban on the activity. Rasmussen says while it's important to protect freedom of expression, including religious criticism, this does not include mocking other cultures and beliefs. A recent spate of Koran burnings in front of foreign embassies in Copenhagen and in Stockholm has sparked demonstrations against Danish and Swedish missions in the Middle East. Swedish Prime Minister Ulf Kristersson says his government is also looking at how to legally prevent the desecration of the Koran and other holy books without changing its position on freedom of speech. For NPR News, I'm Terry Schultz. The U.S. is preparing to play Portugal in its final group stage match at the Women's World Cup soccer tournament. A win by the U.S. would move the team into the knockout round. That game kicks off at 3 in the morning Eastern time tomorrow. I'm Dave Mattingly in Washington. From WBMR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. The U.S. State Department says it is aware of the kidnapping of a New Hampshire nurse and her child in Haiti. The humanitarian group El Roy Haiti says 31-year-old Alex Dorsonville and her young daughter were abducted on Thursday. Dorsonville is reportedly the wife of the group's director. She's working at it, She was working at its Port-au-Prince campus at the time. Government officials have issued a do-not-travel advisory to Haiti, citing widespread gang violence in the country. The NAACP National Convention continues today in Boston. Delegates will vote on resolutions about topics including education, civil rights, and criminal justice. WBR's Amy Sokolo reports the event is giving local residents an opportunity to make connections with people from across the country. Chanel John works with the group Boston While Black, a membership network for black professionals and students. John says it feels amazing to have the National Convention here. 
And I hope that this can be an opportunity to recognize all of the amazing work that black Bostonians who live here have been doing day in and day out since the last NAACP convention here. Saturday night, Vice President Kamala Harris told delegates the NAACP will be a leader in organizing and registering voters for the presidential election. Harris said re-electing President Biden is critical with civil rights under attack. The convention wraps up tomorrow with an appearance from former Secretary of State Hillary Clinton. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Amy Sokolow. We're about halfway through the closure of the Sumner Tunnel. The link between East Boston and downtown will stay closed until August 31st for a construction project. The Blue Line of the T and the East Boston Ferry are both free during the closure. As far as the detours being used by drivers, the Ted Williams Tunnel is a 20-minute trip right now from Route 145 to 93. Route 1 South is 25 minutes from the Revere Beach Parkway to the Leverett Connector. Right now, it's 8.35. The Red Sox lost two out of three games this weekend in San Francisco. They fell to the Giants yesterday 4-3 in 11 innings. The Sox will be in Seattle tonight to play the Mariners. Highs in the low 80s today under mostly sunny skies. Low 60s tonight and it'll turn partly cloudy. Tomorrow, clear skies and highs in the upper 70s. Right now, it's 70 degrees in Boston. You're with WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from BritBox with the new season of Silent Witness. Every dead body tells a story in this long-running forensic crime drama starring Amelia Fox. New season streaming at BritBox.com NPR. And from Indeed, designed to be an end-to-end hiring solution for businesses of any size to attract, interview, and hire candidates all from one place. More at Indeed.com slash NPR. This is NPR. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm A. Martinez in Culver City, California. And I'm Leila Faldil in Washington, D.C. A suicide bombing at a political rally near Pakistan's border with Afghanistan has killed dozens of people and injured some 200. It was one of the deadliest attacks in Pakistan this year, and it comes as the country prepares for elections this fall. On the line with us is NPR's international correspondent, Dia Hadid. She covers Pakistan. Good morning. Good morning, Layla. So what do we know about what happened? Well, more details are emerging now. Local media report the bomber was carrying over 22 pounds of explosives and he struck just as a guest speaker got on stage. Videos shared on Twitter showed the aftermath. Um, In one, a man with bloodied legs dangling off the Mm. back of an open back Jeep is rushed away and another shows medics placing body parts into coffins. Disturbing descriptions. Do we know why this rally, this place was targeted? Well, it occurred in a district called Bajur, and it straddles the Afghan border. And it spotlights in part how violence has been spilling over into Pakistan since the Taliban seized Afghanistan nearly two years ago. And that violence has largely been attacks on soldiers and police. It's the work of a Pakistani offshoot of the Taliban and a local insurgent group. Mm. But this attack was different. It had the hallmarks of the Islamic State. And it signaled a different kind of spillover that's just as worrying. So what do you mean by a different kind of spillover? Right. Well, the the Taliban have been killing suspected Islamic State fighters in Afghanistan and clerics uh, sympathetic to the group. And Islamic State has been striking back against the Taliban and its ideological enablers. And this 
political party is sympathetic to the Taliban, but it's in Pakistan. So it seems that ISIS may be taking this fight across the border. Mm. Iftikhar Firdos is the founding editor of the Khorasan Diary. It's a publication that focuses on militancy in South and Central Asia. And he says ISIS has had this political party in its sights for a while. In the last couple of months, we've seen that propaganda. And it's not just the Pashto and the Farsi versions of the Islamic State of Khorasan publications, but also some of the Arabic publications now uh, clearly said that the group was a target. And you see that the Taliban-ISIS conflict has spilled over into Pakistan in the past, but this attack was big and politically sensitive because the party in question is part of the current Pakistani government coalition. So for this, I also spoke to security researcher Abdul Basit. He's at the S. Rajaratnam School of International Studies in Singapore. So these two groups have been going back and forth, killing each other. The war has now extended and spilling over into, I mean, it was already in Pakistan, but now it is expanding. So how is Pakistan responding to this? Well, security researchers like Abdul Basit say Pakistan's military has to improve intelligence gathering and win over the hearts and minds of locals. It's not something, though, that the Pakistani military has done well in the past. But the stakes are quite high right now. Elections are expected in October this year, and it's hard to see how that will happen if a political party remains targeted like this. Mm. NPR's Dia Hadid, thank you for your reporting, Dia. Thank you, Leila. Ukraine's troops are inching forward on the battlefield, slowly pushing Russian forces out of occupied Ukrainian land. Yeah, they recently liberated a village in the southeast that's key to Ukraine's success on the southern front, but there's still a long way to go. Meanwhile, Russia is blaming Ukraine for a series of drone attacks in Moscow. Ukrainian leaders say Russians should know what it feels like to be under attack. Joining us now from Kyiv is NPR's Joanna Kakissis. Hi, Joanna. Hi, Leila. So Ukraine is touting the liberation of this small town in the Mm -hmm. southeast. Why are Ukrainians calling it a strategic victory? So, uh, yeah, this village is called Stato Mayorske, and President Volodymyr Zelensky announced its liberation himself on his social media accounts. He posted a video of soldiers in the village holding a Ukrainian flag and shouting glory to Ukraine. We spoke to one of the soldiers who was there. He goes by the call sign Kherson, which is another liberated city in southern Ukraine. And he told us that they captured Russian soldiers, but it was a very, very tough win. Russians were attacking from all sides. And he says they were using cluster bombs. The Ukrainians lost soldiers. And when his unit entered the village, he says what he saw broke his heart. The destruction there is catastrophic. There is not a single surviving house. There is not even an entire surviving tree. There is only scorched earth. No people, he said. There were only some abandoned animals. But from a military standpoint, he and his commanders call this a strategic win. In a counteroffensive where progress has been very slow and very hard fought. They say that reclaiming Staromayorsky is just one line of attack in the south that aims to cut off resupply routes for Russia's troops. This line of attack goes through Staromayorsky to the occupied port city of Berdyansk on the Sea of Azov. And another line to the west goes through the occupied city of Melitopol. Ukrainian forces have been hitting Russian barracks and stockpiles in these areas with artillery and long-range missiles provided by the West. So very strategic, but also what you're describing, quite tragic as they go mm-hmm. into the city. Now, this area isn't the only major front in the counteroffensive. What's going yeah. on elsewhere? 
So Ukraine is fighting on at least three major fronts. The one we just talked about is in the south. There's another one in the east uh, around another absolutely destroyed city, Bakhmut. The soldiers we spoke to there say there is steady but very slow progress in recapturing that city and surrounding villages. And there's another front in the northeast where the Russians are attacking. The spokesman for the Eastern Military Command told us that the Russians have thrown a large number of troops and weapons there. And Deputy Defense Minister Hanna Maliar told us that, especially in the south, the battles are intense and grinding. It's really a story of exhaustion. Our armed forces are trying to wear down our enemy's defenses, and our enemy is fighting back hard. At the same time, we are eager to move forward, to continue our offensive. In the few seconds we have left, what about the spate of drone attacks on Moscow? So Ukraine is not officially claiming those drone attacks, but after one hit a high rise in Moscow, President Zelensky said, quote, war is returning to Russia and such attacks on Russia's symbolic centers are fair, considering that Russia has been attacking Ukraine cities nearly every day for the last 18 months. NPR's Joanna Kakissis in Kyiv. Thanks, Joanna. You're welcome. Coming up this afternoon on All Things Considered, critic Bob Mandelo tells the story of how Hollywood imagined artificial intelligence long before the technology became real. Listen on your smartphone, on the web, or turn on your radio. This is NPR News. Coming up in 10 minutes, the Marketplace Morning Report looks at why some prominent Republicans are reversing course and embracing ideas like allowing student loans to be wiped away during bankruptcy. Just a few clouds today, otherwise clear skies with temperatures rising to the low 80s. Tonight it dips to the low 60s, a little cooler tomorrow, upper 70s under sunny skies. Right now it's 70 degrees in Boston. Now in business news, Bedford-based Homology Medicines is laying off a majority of its staff as it looks for potential buyers. The cuts will affect about 80 people at the gene therapy company. Company leaders say tough financial conditions are behind the move. This is your last week to shop at many Christmas tree shops around the state. MassLive reports several of the chain's Massachusetts locations permanently closed yesterday. Others will close by the middle of next month. The Middleborough Company filed for bankruptcy earlier this year. It's 8.45. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Zevin Asset Management, building socially responsible investment portfolios that help create a healthy planet and just society. Learn how to invest sustainably at Zevin.com. And MathWorks, creators of MATLAB and Simulink, supporting the Franklin Park and Stone Zoos and their efforts to protect and preserve the natural world for future generations.
It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Faldin. And I'm A. Martinez. The United States could be at risk of heading home from the Women's World Cup without even making it into the knockout round. After their face-off with the Netherlands ended in a tie, the best chance for the defending two-time champs to stay on the pitch is to beat Portugal in a game less than 24 hours from now. Alicia Delgallo is a senior editor for USA Today's Sports. Alicia, so I mentioned a win is ideal. Can they stay alive with a tie? Hi, yes, um, they can stay alive with a tie, but you're looking at, you know, tiebreakers and goal differentials and other teams doing what they're supposed to do. So let's avoid all of that and just win like they're supposed to. Cut through all the red tape, right? That that would be the ideal situation. How, how does the United States compare to uh, Portugal? If you'd asked me entering the tournament, the United States should beat Portugal. They are more experienced. They have incredible forward talent. But uh, seeing how the U.S. has performed the last two games and um, the hesitancy from the coach to use subs in the last game when they were down and, you know, looking for some firepower. Also, seeing how some of the traditionally non powerful countries in a World Cup have been putting up such a fight against other countries. I think it's going to be an interesting one, but the U.S. should be able to handle this game. Wow, just two games and all of a sudden there's doubt. Could it just be a blip, these two games? Well, I don't think it. I would consider it a blip. I think that this team needed to kind of be more cohesive and are working through some things in the first two games. And also, you know, there were some injuries, so a little bit of lack of consistency there entering the tournament, maybe getting into a groove. Getting into a groove. Now, I'm wondering, so the United States women have, have really fought to grow the women's game all over the world. Did that somehow now come back to bite them in that there are better teams all over the world now? Yeah, I don't think they would characterize it as coming back to bite them. This is what they wanted, right? Um, Competition rising throughout the world will only make them better as well. But that said, yes, the gap is definitely closing. We've been talking about this for a long time. We could see signs of it at the last World Cup in 2019. And it's just kind of been like, let's see what happens at this World Cup. And now we're seeing it. We're seeing Jamaica perform well. We're seeing Colombia upset Germany. Um, we're seeing the Philippines pull off upsets. And so it's definitely um, looking like the gap is closing as a result of the growth. So if not the U.S., then has uh, any other team specifically emerged as a team to beat? Because I just saw Japan really beat Spain badly. Yeah, Japan has been looking really good. Japan has always been a tough team. Um, They're doing what they're supposed to do and then some during this group stage. And then I would say some of the countries that came in that looked like they would compete for number one originally, England, France, Sweden, you know, are looking good. But Japan is looking particularly dominant for sure. I would have put Germany at the top of that pack until Colombia. (laughs) Makes for a more exciting tournament. Alicia Delgallo with USA Today Sports. Thanks a lot. Thank you. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm E. Martinez. And I'm Leila Faldin.
Tomorrow's World Cup match between the U.S. and Portugal starts at 3 a.m. If that's a little too early for you, we'll have the results tomorrow here on Morning Edition. Coming up at the top of the hour on WBUR, it's the BBC News Hour. They'll have the latest on China's treatment of its Uyghur communities, plus the discovery of a 2,000-year-old theater in Rome. It's 849. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Lauren Holleran with Gibson Sotheby's International Realty in Cambridge, real estate brokerage that is grounded in data and committed to thoughtful design. LaurenHolleran.com. The threat of artificial intelligence is part of why actors and writers are striking in Hollywood. But dangerous AI is something movies have been wrestling with for a while. I'm sorry, Dave. I'm afraid I can't do that. This mission is too important for me to allow you to jeopardize it. A history of AI villains in film, on All Things Considered, from NPR News. Listen today, starting at 4 on 90.9 WBUR. Here's a look at some of the stories we're following this Monday morning. Officials in Pakistan are vowing to find those responsible for a suicide bombing yesterday that killed at least 45 people and injured dozens more. A Libyan man who says he escaped execution from the Russian Wagner Group is taking them to court in the U.S. over allegations of human rights abuse. And an employee of former President Donald Trump is in court today on charges that he obstructed the investigation into the mishandling of classified documents. Stay up to date on the news all day here on 90.9 WBUR and on the WBUR app. WBUR supporters include Metro West Subaru, where same-day and next-day service appointments are available. Service until 9 on Route 9 in Natick. Low 80s and mostly sunny today. Clouds move in tonight and it falls to the low 60s. Sunny tomorrow and upper 70s. Right now, it's 71 degrees in Boston. Yellow alert on the supply chain as the trucking company Yellow halts operations. Marketplace Morning Report is supported by the Glassdoor app, where professionals share advice and talk about work and life anonymously. Conversations are happening within companies and in thousands of communities on the new Glassdoor app. And by Odoo, focused on providing all-in-one open-source business management software with fully integrated applications for every business need. More at odoo.com. I'm David Brancaccio from our Washington Bureau today. One of the nation's biggest trucking companies has shut down and has told the union it has filed for bankruptcy protection. This is Yellow, a nearly century-old firm with the orangey banner. Yellow had been moving freight for companies small and very large, including Walmart and Home Depot. Marketplace's Nova Safo is following this. The Teamsters Union, which represents more than 20,000 workers at Yellow, says the company ceased operations and is filing for bankruptcy. Yellow has not responded to a request for comment. But the company has said that it is laden with about $1.3 billion in debt, which it has an imminent need to refinance. That includes a $700 million pandemic relief loan from the U.S. government provided during the Trump administration. Yellow reported a narrow loss in the first quarter of this year, and even last year at the same time when trucking companies couldn't keep up with soaring demand, the company barely made a profit. Last month, it sued the Teamsters, alleging the union blocked the company's restructuring efforts, which it said were necessary to compete against non-union carriers. The Teamsters criticized the company's management. I'm Nova Safo for Marketplace. Checking markets, S&P and NASDAQ futures are up two-tenths of a percent each. We're at the end of what's on track to be the hottest month on Earth ever recorded. 
Yet countries are still burning a lot of coal, fueling climate change. A new report from the International Energy Agency shows global demand for coal reaching a record level in 2022. India and China continue to use more coal, unlike the U.S. Marketplace's Henry Epp has that. Countries like India and China rely on coal for two big reasons, says Sonia Carley, a professor of energy policy at the University of Pennsylvania. It's usually cheap and available. And so as these countries industrialize and develop, coal is typically one of the first choice energy options that are pursued. Wind and solar energy is getting less expensive, but Seth Feaster, an analyst with the Institute for Energy Economics and Financial Analysis, says renewables aren't enough to meet China's demand. Despite being a world leader in the amount of wind and solar capacity that they're installing, coal is still rising. They haven't reached a tipping point yet. Unlike in the U.S., where coal use continues to fall, that's in part because unlike China, our overall energy demand has been pretty stagnant, Feaster says. And so what that's meant over the last 15 years or so is that all the new power generated by wind and solar is replacing something else namely coal. Globally, the International Energy Agency predicts coal demand will remain flat this year and next. But that's a big problem, says Daniel Cohan, an associate professor of environmental engineering at Rice University. Any year that that we don't see coal use decline dramatically is another year that we're falling behind the pace of, of what needs to happen for climate goals. Maybe, he says, all the extreme weather we've seen this summer might push countries to act faster to find alternatives. I'm Henry App for Marketplace. Yet there's news this morning that the British government will permit hundreds of new oil and gas projects in the North Sea. The United Nations and environmental groups had called for an end to these new leases for fossil fuel production. Marketplace Morning Report is supported by Amazon Business. From small business to big enterprise and everything in between, Amazon Business helps simplify the supplies buying process. Amazon Business, your partner for smart business buying. And by C3 AI. C3 Generative AI provides chat GPT enterprise search that is verifiable, secure, and accurate across all enterprise data. C3.ai. This is Enterprise AI. Some prominent Republicans are switching gears on some notable pieces of economic policy. These are social conservatives and sticking to it, but they're moving away from the party's traditional laissez-faire take on business and embracing ideas from a new group called American Compass. One of these ideas, allowing student loans to be wiped away during bankruptcy. Marketplace's Nancy Marshall-Genzer has that. Orrin Cass is not your father's Republican, especially when he's talking about how student loan debt is treated in bankruptcy. We tried to set it aside and say, this is special and thou shalt forever be buried under any debt you take on. Cass sounds like a Democrat there, but he was an advisor in Mitt Romney's 2012 presidential campaign. In 2020, he founded American Compass, a think tank dedicated to encouraging Republicans to take a new look at capitalism. For example, treating student loans like any other debt and allowing them to be discharged during bankruptcy. Right now, they can't be, and that was disastrous for 47-year-old Angel Bracey. She enrolled at the University of Phoenix, a for-profit school majoring in human resources while working full-time. Then she lost her job and had to drop out. It's frustrating to have that debt and not have something to show for it. 
To have your student loan debt discharged by a judge, you have to prove it's causing you undue hardship. Bracey didn't meet that standard, even though her student debt is greater than her yearly income. It's virtually impossible for anyone to meet that standard, which led the Justice Department to simplify it last year. Bipartisan Senate legislation to overhaul the bankruptcy code on student loans didn't go anywhere two years ago, but Orrin Cass calls it a step in the right direction. That really strikes the sweet spot of how conservatives would want to approach this sort of issue. Maybe. Even Cass admits. The House is a tough nut to crack on any policy initiative these days. Especially when lobbyists from universities and the student loan business show up. According to the campaign finance tracking site Open Secrets, three companies that collect on or service student loans spent more than $9 million lobbying Congress since 2021. Scott Buchanan heads their trade group, the Student Loan Servicing Alliance. He's wondering... How do we create a product that makes sense for bars, meets them where they are, but also that we don't create potential for issues where people abuse the system? Orrin Cass at American Compass doesn't think student borrowers would do that. Bankruptcy isn't some get-out-of-jail-free card. Bankruptcy is, is an incredibly painful process. But the financial industry spent years lobbying to make bankruptcy law tougher on student debtors, and it's not in a hurry to change things. I'm Nancy Marshall-Genser for Marketplace. And in Washington, D.C. today, I'm David Brancaccio. You're listening to the Marketplace Morning Report. From APM, American Public Media. We'll have temperatures in the 70s and low 80s throughout the week, beginning with partly sunny skies and low 80s today. Temperatures fall to the low 60s tonight, then we'll have clear skies and upper 70s tomorrow. Right now it's 71 degrees in Boston. The BBC is coming up next. I'm here and now host Scott Tong, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.